0: If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to open with me to Luke chapter 13 if you would. Uh, Luke chapter 13 and we will begin in verse 1. Luke chapter 13 and verse 1. And if you if you're here last week, you might remember that uh we we honored, we celebrated our graduates and our uh our mothers in in ways it seems like that was really long ago, but it was only last week. And uh, hopefully things go better today than they did last week because you might also remember that I had a big build up in the middle of the sermon. And then my mind went completely blank and I could not remember anything that I was trying to trying to get out and I felt kind of like a preacher I, I heard about who had gone to a conference and um, you know, preachers are, are human too and he was sitting there in the conference and he was listening to the speaker and, and his mind started to kind of wander and all of a sudden he heard the speaker say very solemnly, I spent two years in the arms of a woman who is not my wife. And of course everybody, that got everybody's attention, they all uh every, all eyes were on him he paused a moment and said it was my mom and of course everybody laughed and and uh and the preacher thought you know that that's pretty good i, I might have to remember that so then a couple weeks later he was at his home church and he was preaching and he saw people's eyes start to glaze over and he thought you know what i'm going to do the same thing and so he uh out of the blue he said i spent two years in the arms of a woman who is not my wife and his mind went blank and, and of course, all all eyes were on him, his wife was unaware of this, and she began to shift uncomfortably in her seat, and so he said it again, thinking, I've got to buy some time, and he said, I spent two years in the arms of a woman who is not my wife, and he still couldn't remember, he said, and I can't remember her name, and so, <laughs> I, I felt kind of like that on, uh, on Mother's Day, but... Uh, uh, but anyway, hopefully things go better today, and hopefully you remember something out of the sermon besides that that joke. So anyway, we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 13, and we will pick up in verse 1, and uh, you, you remember that Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem, where he's going to die at the hands of sinful men, he's going to be crucified, and as he's making his way, he's, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's doing a lot of stuff, and then in chapter 12, you remember, he's just taught that... That he did not come to bring peace on earth. That's what we always think of about Jesus. We think he's, uh, you know, he's, he's Jesus meek and mild. He's come to make everybody uh, hold hands and sing kumbaya. Sometimes that's, the, that's kind of the popular picture the people have in their mind of Christ. But he said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And, uh, of course, the reason for that is because not everybody's on board with Christ. Not everybody is in in league or in line with what he says to to do, the the ways he says to think. And he calls us to such a high devotion that it's supposed to even surpass our family relationships, those things that are the closest uh, in life to us. He says that you uh, you should love me even above those things. And because of that, there's going to naturally be conflict on account of Christ. And so he's called us to do that in, in chapter 12, and then he says to the people, he said, you know what, and this is my summary, this is the paraphrase, he said, you know what, you can predict the weather because you look around, you see what's happening, you say it's going to be windy, it's going to be hot, you, you, can, you can understand those things, you know when it's going to rain, but here I am performing all these miracles, I'm doing all these acts that are prophesied in the Old Testament, and you can't see that I'm the Messiah. Okay. So in that same context, on that same occasion, whether it's that very day that he was teaching these things, or at least in this... Uh, in this teaching episode, this teaching tour that he's doing, in those, that same circumstance, some people began to talk about and, and ask him about some tragic deaths that had happened uh, that everybody in the area was familiar with. And so Jesus takes that opportunity to teach them a very important lesson, a very valuable lesson, and that is, Repent, or you too will all likewise perish. So if you found Luke chapter 13 and are able to, I'd like you to stand in honor of God's word, We'll pick up in verse 1 and read down to verse 9. It says, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, he he had them murdered. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those eighteen on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were, were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable, A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. I think you may be seated. Now this is a very short text. It's very easy to understand. Um, There are three main things I want you to see in it. The first are the tragedies. The tragedies. Now, now, these are what you might call untimely deaths. And so in verse 1, Jesus is teaching, and some people in the crowd ask him about the Galileans that Pilate had murdered. Now, he didn't do it, uh, he didn't physically murder them, but he had them put to death. He had them murdered. And we don't know why these people were bringing this up to Jesus. I mean, it, it, it could be that they were trying to get Jesus in trouble with people. Because one of the things that Jesus' enemies would do is oftentimes they would ask him an inflammatory question or a difficult question. And, and what they would try to get him to do is, is answer in such a way it's going to make somebody mad. So one time they came to Jesus and said, is it lawful to pay taxes? Now us as Americans who have to pay out the nose in taxes, we wish Jesus would have said, no, don't do that. But Jesus, you remember, he, he recognized what they were doing. They were trying to trying to trip him up. If he, if he said, yes, it's lawful, that'd get him in trouble with the people uh, because they are paying it for, to a foreign government. And if he said no, that'd get him in trouble with the government because, I mean, the governments love their taxes. And so, so they were trying to put him on the horns of a, an impossible situation. And, and so it's possible that they were doing that. They, they could have been trying to get Jesus to say uh, something negative about Pilate and the government. And get him to run afoul of them. Or to say something the other way and and get him in trouble with people who are sympathetic to those who had died. Another option might be that they're just trying to get Jesus' take on things. Jesus, did you hear about this? What do you think about this? It could be that somebody just reported a recent event. Hey, did you see what, what, what was in the newspaper this week? We don't know... Why it was asked, we don't know outside of this biblical uh, text. We don't know when this happened. I, I mean, we, we have events of history that people like Josephus have recorded um, that that's very similar to what Jesus was talking about. So, for instance, in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 5, I believe it is, there was a man by the name of Judas of Galilee, or Judas the Galilean. And now this is not Judas Iscariot, somebody with the same first name. But um, in, in Acts chapter 5, it talks about... This this man who had risen up and got all kinds of people surrounding him and, and led this political movement, and he was he was killed and his followers began to be dispersed. You remember that Galilei, uh, Gamaliel said, "If that's the case, if, if this if this movement is from God, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. If this movement is from man, just you know just let it alone. It'll it'll peter out by itself." I don't know if you remember all that. But anyway, so Judas of Galilee or Judas the Galilean. Um, he had this. He 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 led this political movement that was real conservative. They were they were like the Pharisees in uh, religiously, uh, but they also had this uh, the, this this addiction to freedom. And so, uh, what he did was he encouraged people to not pay taxes to Rome, to not recognize the Roman government. And this group was actually one of the main reasons that that Jerusalem was destroyed in seventy A.D. Now it could be that it was his group because we know that he he and some of them were killed it could be that that's what they're referring to. We don't know. We know that uh, Josephus records that, uh, that a Roman leader named Archelaus had sent out um, some soldiers into the temple and killed about 3,000 men while they were offering sacrifices. So this is, again, this is not unheard of. We just don't know what the exact circumstances are. The other event that is mentioned is actually mentioned by Jesus, and he mentions a tower in Jerusalem near the, the Pool of Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. Now again, we don't know, we don't have record of it that survived antiquity, but, um, but it's a tragic death. And whether the, the death is because of murder, or because of a natural disaster, or a construction accident, or whatever it is, um, Jesus takes that opportunity to teach a lesson. So we have the tragedies, and here's the lesson he draws from it. Most people, or many people, would have expected Jesus to say, the reason that this bad stuff happened was because they were bad sinners. That's what many people would expect, that Jesus would say that these things happened because they were extraordinarily bad sinners, because they had some specific sin in their life. The word of faith teachers of today might say, well, they, it happened to them because of a lack of faith. But what is the lesson that Jesus drew out? Well, he, he actually teases out this idea that maybe it was because they were worse sinners. And what is his answer to that? Verse 3, but I tell you no... That's not the reason this happened, and, but, but here's the, the, the lesson. Unless you repent, you, all, you will all likewise perish. Same thing with verse 2. Do you suppose these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, that's not the reason. The, eight, the, the 18 in, in Jerusalem at Siloam, they weren't worse debtors, and this is not talking about money. This is the, the same word that's used in the Lord's Prayer, uh, forgive us our debts, it's talking about sin. He's saying the reason this happened is not because of some specific sin in their lives. And we have, we, we have this idea in our minds, and, and really it's universal, that good things happen to who? Good people. And conversely, bad things happen to bad people. And, the, and we get real confused and people get all bothered by this idea that sometimes bad things happen to who? Good people. Because it doesn't make sense to us. Because we think good people get good stuff, bad people get bad stuff. And, and when bad things happen to good people, it, doesn't, it, it just kind of blows our mind. And so Jesus ex- explodes this view. Now, I just want to take a, just taking aside here and say, number one, bad things don't happen to good people because there aren't any good people. We're all sinners. None of us deserves good. But number two, this idea that good will happen to good people and bad will happen to bad people is the same assumption that Job's friends had. You remember, they came onto the scene for a while. Job had lost his, his livestock, his livelihood, his children. He lost everything. He lost his health. I mean, he was in a bad state of affairs. And his friends came, and, and the best thing they did was they kept their mouths shut. They came, and they sat down next to Job, and they saw he was hurting. They saw he was in agony, and they just sat. And so, so, so the best things they did was not say anything, but then they began to talk. And all went downhill after that, and then, then they started to say, "Well, Job, the reason this bad stuff's happening to you is because you have some secret sin in your life," and and they began to to make these accusations against him. But we know that the other we we're like Paul Harvey. We know the rest of the story. The, the reason this happened was not because of some badness in his life. It was actually because he was righteous. The the same assumption is behind the disciples' words in John nine. You remember there was a man born blind, and the disciples said. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 3, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I say all that to say this. When you hear of some tragedy befall people, when you hear of, of somebody having a house fire, when you hear of a tornado hitting someone's home, when you hear about a flood or, or, or a hurricane or some tragic illness, you hear about some traffic accident, you, you, you hear about some unexpected injury, you hear about nations that are undergoing famine, you hear about all these terrible things that are happening, there may be a temptation to believe, and even worse, to say that that person is undergoing that bad thing because of a specific sin in their life. And this is teaching us what, what Jesus is saying is, no, this is not necessarily happening because of a specific sin. So then does this tragedy serve a purpose? Does it teach anything? Yes, for the survivors it teaches us the vital lesson, repent or you too will all likewise perish. Now that's not to say that the tower is going to fall on all of us. But it does teach us that first, death is coming, and it could just as easily have been you instead of that person. That tornado could just as easily have hit your home instead of theirs. That house fire could have, hit, uh, could, could have taken place in your home just as easily as their home. That person was in a car wreck, and it could just as easily have been you, and you know it because you've been in some situations where you were pretty close to it. Those same things that happen to them could have happened to you. And the fact that somebody dies does not necessarily show they are under the displeasure of God because anybody can die and all of us one day will die. The fact is, anybody can die. Everybody will die. Therefore, you need to get right with God. You need to repent. You need to... You need to have a zero balance with the Lord. And so when we hear these things that happen to these people, whether it's, like I said, a sickness or a tragedy or whatever it is, instead of thinking about the wrong that they've done in life, we need to think about the wrong that we've done and get that right with God. Because, again, it could have been anybody, and everybody is going to pass away one day. The second lesson this teaches us is that, that calamity is going to happen in life, but listen, this this life is only temporary. As bad as the stuff that happens now is, it's only of limited duration. But if we suffer calamity in the, in the life to come, that is eternal. And I, I would just ask you today, are you right with God? Are you right with God? Have you ever repented? Have you heard and heeded his message? Too many times we hear about somebody that's cut down in the prime of life, again, through Uh, A traffic accident, a work accident, uh, a natural disaster, a sudden illness, whatever it is. Life is short and it's fragile. Therefore, while you still have time, repent. Get right with God. So we, we, we have the tragedy, we have the lesson the last thing I want you to see is the parable that Jesus tells. And really this little story that he, that he tells is fleshing out this teaching about repenting. He fleshes it out a little bit more and, and from a little bit different angle. He tells about a man who has a vineyard. Now often in Jesus' parables and, and really in, in the Old Testament prophets, we see God pictured as a vineyard owner, a landowner. And the vineyard many times is representative of the nation of Israel. Not always because the context determines the use here. But, in this case, there's a landowner he has a vineyard, and in this vineyard, they've planted a fig tree, and he expects to have he expects to have some fruit it's been tended to, it's been cared for, and he expects fruit so he comes and he looks for this fruit for three years, and finally, he comes on that third year and he says, "You know what? there's no fruit. let's cut it down. It's just taking up space, nothing is being grown there that's that's helping anything. Let's cut it down, plant something there that'll not that it'll make good use of the soil now I, I want you to, to notice what happens the the owner here the the vineyard owner here is God and again the the picture here could be of Israel but really this is a picture of how God deals with people on one hand we see the displeasure of God towards the unfruitful now sometimes in in gospel presentations. We get the idea that God is not really all that upset about sin. He doesn't like it, but, you know, it's us it just do better. But that's not the picture of God in the Bible. Psalm chapter 7, or Psalm, the 7th Psalm, verses 11 through 13. says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Some translations render that. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Listen, if you are unrepentant, the Bible says that God is indignant with you. In the original language, the word translated as indignant has the idea of being angry. It has the idea of being enraged. God is enraged with you every moment of every day apart from Christ. At this very moment, it is an act of grace. If you've never repented, it is an act of grace and mercy of God that you are not cast immediately into hell. He is enraged. He is indignant. Not just at the sin, but also at the sinner. Something else we see here is the long-suffering of the Lord. He has every right to chop down the tree to to raise up something that's useful to Him. He has that desire, but you notice that there's long-suffering. Even though the he he doesn't have to do it he's under no obligation to do it the landowner extends a little more time and listen if you still have breath in your lungs god has extended you more time there's patience there's grace but also notice that long suffering does not go on indefinitely there is a period of time and at the end of that time the long suffering the mercy the grace comes to an end The vineyard owner extended a time, but there was a day fixed. Past that point, if there was no fruitfulness, if there was no change in the condition of the tree, it was going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And likewise, God will not strive with man forever. This is the day of grace. While you still hear His voice calling you to salvation, calling you to repent, heed that and answer His call. Repent and turn to God. Because that day will not last forever. If you go past that day of grace, there is, there's no more hope. If you do not repent, if there's no change of state in your heart, to use the imagery of the parable, you're liable to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And, and, and don't think, well, you know what? I'll just come to Christ any old time I want, any time that just when it's convenient for me. I'll just do it at the end of my life whenever I'm on my deathbed. Guess what? You may not have a deathbed. It may happen like that. Even if, even if you do have a deathbed, you may not be conscious. And even if you are conscious, even if you have a prolonged, protracted illness, and you can see your life ebbing away, and you have plenty of time with which to make a decision, you know what Jesus said? He said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not they will not They cannot. There is an inability. You cannot, of your own volition, of your own power, come to Christ apart from the Father's work in your heart. If you would be saved, you'll do it His way while He's working in your heart. And I implore you, if you have not repented, while it's still called today, while you still have that opportunity, I implore you, I I beg you, I call on you to repent. Don't wait until it's too late. Because right now, as the Lord is, is, is maybe drawing you, that's your opportunity. That's your window of opportunity. That's when the, 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 the doors are thrown open. Listen, he is enraged with you because of your sin. You say, well, you know, he hates sin. Yes, but he won't punish sin in hell. He punishes the sinner in hell. He is enraged with the sin and the sinner. And so, what, therefore, while it's still cold today, get right. Repent or you too will likewise perish. I not you to stand with me as um, musicians come. And as you stand, as you bow your heads and close your eyes. And just in the quiet of this time, with nobody looking around, I want you, I want you to examine your heart. I'm not asking about your church membership. I'm not asking about your uh, faithfulness or lack thereof to, to, to church attendance. I'm not asking about your parents, your grandparents, family, tradition, or background, or heritage. Have you personally ever repented of your sin? What does that mean? It means to have a change of mind. It means to have a change of heart. Have you ever recognized your sin against God? Recognized its sinfulness turned to God in faith and asked him for forgiveness because the Bible says that right now this very moment God is enraged with you if that answer is no but the good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world That He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, anyone, everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. That means you if you'll put your faith in Him. Scripture goes on to say that the one who believes in the Son is not condemned but the one who doesn't believe is condemned already because he's not believed on the one and only Son of God. Would you today turn to God in faith? Would you repent? If you're a Christian, if you've repented, hallelujah, that is an act of grace that you didn't deserve. It's one that I didn't deserve. Our Heavenly Father, for those of us who are believers, we have repented. We thank you for that act of mercy and grace. And we're reminded whenever we sin, we're reminded of the sinfulness of that sin. And God, I ask that you'd help each of us to to keep a zero balance with you, so to speak that whenever we sin, that we would confess that to you. And God, for our friends and our loved ones, maybe they're here in this congregation today, maybe uh, folks who are in our workplace and our families, maybe somebody that's watching or listening online, that has never turned from their sin, they've never abandoned it and cast themselves at your feet for mercy. God, we pray that you would draw them to yourself today. And let today be the day of salvation. God, again, we pray that you would move in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.